Glad you guys are here. Good morning. Um, I pray that your week was full of grace. I pray that you felt God's favor in your quiet moments and in your uh, rambunctious activities. Uh, in uh, life all week, both the easy parts of life and the difficult parts of life. I hope that you know that God was with you, pouring his love and his goodness to you. So that's what we were talking about in last week's sermon, so bringing you up to speed here. This week, in the second half of chapter 2 of Ephesians, we're going to see how, how being in God's grace changes our relationship with one another, with other human beings. It changes it on a macro scale, on like a whole worldwide scale, but it also changes it in a much narrower scale, in a church-wide scale. And we're going to look at how God changes our relationships with one another. And we're going to be seeing that in Ephesians chapter 2, the second half of the book in verse 11. We're going to start out there. So if you're a Bible follower, like to follow along in your Bible and go ahead and grab that out. If not, our verses uh, will be on the screen, probably. So no guarantee, but probably. So, oh yeah. So we're going to start out with that. In Ephesians chapter 2, let's start right, in, uh, jump right in here. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at, at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You're without hope. You're without God in the world. So I, I think uh, most of the folks in, in this uh, church fall under the category of Gentiles. I'm not sure if we have a, uh, any ethnic Jew member, uh, Jewish members of our church. I don't think so. Um, so this is all about us. Everyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile, according to the Bible. Paul reminds everyone that the Gentiles previously were excluded from God's promise. It seems like up till now, uh, at least in the Bibles now, God's economy, in God's human economy, there were only two groups. There were Jews and Gentiles. There were Jews and not Jews. That's how God viewed the world prior to Christ. And so it finds, uh, Gentiles find themselves in a desperate place, as we see here. The Gentiles, they're, they're aliens separated from God. They're strangers. They have no hope. And they, they don't have, the, they are living their life without God. And so not only are they spiritually dead, but they're without access to God that the Jews enjoy. And so they're separate from Christ. That's what this passage says. They were separate from Christ. What terrible words. What terrible reality to, to be a person who is separate from Christ. They point to the woeful condition of the lost person without spiritual blessing, without, without light, without peace, without rest and safety and goodness, all the things that Jesus provides, without a prophet, a priest, and a king, and ultimately without hope. The absence of hope in the face of death is amply attested to in the Greco-Roman Empire in the writings and the, uh, the writings of that time. They had lots of gods. But they didn't have any hope. But that all changes with Jesus. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Ephesians 2.13, look at this. But now, that's what you had, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Those Gentiles, including us who are Gentiles, in Christ are made near to God, and the blood of Christ is the only way to accomplish this. Now, I think it's important that Paul connects the idea of God's, uh, Jesus' great love and his sacrificial death. Because I think sometimes people think preaching about uh, the, the blood and Jesus crucified, it's all sort of this 
bloody gore sort of sensationalistic thing. If you watch The Passion of the Christ, it seems that's like the whole point of it is to show like, oh, it's so like terrible and horrible and bloody. And, but but if, if you think that's the point, then you miss the point. The point is the blood of Christ demonstrates his, the depth of God's love for you. And so Paul here connects the two. You had been far away, but now you're brought near to God by this loving, sacrificial blood of Christ. In the world, there are many suggestions how you could draw near to God. There's many ideas in the world how to, how to get near to God or how to come near to God because all people without Jesus feel far from him. All people have a longing to be near God, to have a longing of belonging, to have that sometimes people describe it as there's a, there's a God-shaped hole in every single heart and only Jesus can fill it. And so they try to fill it. The world tries to fill it with all sorts of things. Some people, uh, even in the, now they try to keep it by, they try to draw near to God by keeping the Old Testament law. They still try to follow the, the ideas of Judaism. Some people try to draw near to God by, by going to church or a synagogue or a mosque, just, just simply attending, and they think that will help them to draw near to God. Or some people try to draw near to God by believing in a higher power. Or maybe being spiritual but not religious. Or, or maybe in Starbucks you go ahead and pay for the person behind you and you pass it forward or whatever that is, like, right? You're paying it forward. And you're somehow hoping that will draw you near to God. But the Bible's clear that the only pathway to draw near to God is Jesus. He alone draws us near to God. He alone bridges the gap because it's true God is eternally enormous. He has eternally separated us. There is no way you can reach up to God. You can't get to him. You can't can't do enough to earn his favor, even get him to glance at you. But Jesus does the work to bridge the eternity of God to the finite of the human being. It is only by Jesus that we can draw near to God. And not only does Jesus allow us to draw near to God, The Bible then says Jesus allows us to draw near to one another. See how he links it in this next passage in Ephesians 2.14, the very next verse. For he himself, talking about Jesus, he's our peace. He's made two groups into one. He destroyed the barrier that was the the dividing wall of hostility. He, he, He set aside that barrier in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body, his own, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So the Jews hated the Gentiles because they're filthy, godless, and they didn't abide by the Old Testament law. The Gentiles hated the Jews because they were smug and they had these strange weird religious rituals and and, uh, they claimed to be the only people that God liked. The chosen people of God and everyone else is, is damned. The major source of contention between the Jews and the Gentiles was all about the law. The Jews followed the law of the Old Testament. They followed the God of the Old Testament. This is the only way. And that was the contention between the Jews and the Gentiles, the law. But this passage says Jesus took that, the law, and he paid the price in his own flesh. He fulfilled the law. He put to death the source of the contention. 
For the Jews, he freed them from the shackles of the law because they were never going to be able to act perfect. They were never going to be able to fulfill the law. They were always going to fall short. And so when Jesus fulfills the law, he takes away their shackles. And in the same motion, he he frees the Gentiles from their hopelessness, from their separation that they could never bridge because they weren't Jews. And so in the same action as death on the cross, he fulfills the laws, frees the Jews, fulfills the law so that the Gentiles don't have to follow the law. Neither any longer required to follow the law of the Old Testament, rather the love of the new, issued and paid for in Jesus' own body. The work of Jesus is the common ground of salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile. Therefore, there's no longer any dividing wall Between them, Jesus broke that dividing wall down. Now, this would make sense to the Jewish readers because they would think about the temple immediately. And in the Jewish temple, there was was dividing walls between different groups. There was a dividing wall between like the holy priests and the people. There was a dividing wall between the men and the women. And there was a specific dividing wall. There was a court of Gentiles and a court of Jewish people. And the Gentiles weren't allowed to come in the Jewish area to get near to the Jewish gods. Now, they could come watch from afar, but they were never allowed into the area of the Jews. They they were separated by an actual physical barrier. They said, hey, if you're a Gentile, you stay on that side. You cannot come into the temple proper. You can't come offer sacrifices. You can't come be part of this organization. And Jesus says, I'm going to break all that down. In Jesus, the wall of separation is gone because the common lordship is greater than any previous division. This is really important. If the lordship of Jesus Christ is not greater than any difference that you have with other people in our modern time, if the lordship of Jesus is not greater than that, whether those differences are political differences or or economic or racial or language or geography geography or whatever, like if the lordship of Jesus is not greater than any difference that another Christian person has, then you have not fully understood what it means to be under the lordship of Jesus. And this unity didn't just happen. It was the hard-fought work and the accomplishment of Jesus on the cross. That's what it's telling us. By the blood of Jesus, this thing happened. He took people that were divided and put them together. And to deny that is to deny the work of Jesus. So that he takes away all barriers between people, those that are in Christ. No longer racial barriers, no longer linguistic barriers or geography barriers. Or, it doesn't matter if they're Republicans or Democrats or Independents or, or uh, Greenpeace or whatever party. Jesus says that those separations don't matter. What matters is a oneness in Jesus. Now, a cool thing Paul's doing here when he's talking about becoming one body, it's really cool because he said, you're going to become one body in Christ. You all are going to be one body in Christ through the one body Christ. So this like kind of a really cool play on this image where like you're going to become one body through the one body of Jesus and all people come through the one body to become one body. What a cool idea. Now early Christians, they recognized that they were neither Jewish or Gentile. They took this quite seriously. They, they recognized that they were something altogether new. So they become Christians and the Jews don't let them back in the, in the synagogue. And the Gentiles are like, well, you're not us. And so the many early Christians started to call themselves a a third race or a new race, and that's kind of cool, and that's got a little bit like weird, like culty connotation, but but not really. <laughs> they they started to say we we aren't the same. We're we're no longer that dichotomy of Jew and Gentile. Rather, we're something totally different. We're like a brand new people. 
And, and I love this because here's the diversity part of our mission statement. You know, we say, I was trying to remember what they are. They're uh, identity and family and community and diversity. That's our four of our pillars of our mission statement in our church. And I love this diversity part because we didn't make that part of the church to, to sound cool or because like it's currently socially acceptable and that's like the kind of a socially right thing to do. That's not why we chose to have diversity as one of our keys of our church. We chose it because Jesus chose it. We chose it because that's the work that Jesus was doing on the, on the cross. He was breaking down borders and boundaries and walls between people. We're all one family, one body, one people, no matter where you come from. And I love this reality because it's actually my lived-in reality. My wife, she's from South Korea. So she's from South Korea, and I'm from North Dakota, not North Korea. I know you thought I was going to say that. Um, my uh, oldest son is from Nanjing, China. My middle son is from Anaheim, California. <laughs> Our daughter is from Seoul, South Korea. And so this is my lived-in reality, that, that I actually lived in a, we, we, my family lives in a border-free uh, sort of family. We don't get to be racist because that would be totally messed up in your family, right? But, but this is a work of God. It wasn't our original work. And I, I don't mind, uh, well, I don't mind. I don't think my wife minds me sharing a little bit about her. She never had imagined before she started dating me that she would be marrying a white person. All of her age until 28, there was no white person at the end of the aisle when they were getting married in any of her dreams. <laughs> it wasn't even a possibility. It wasn't even a problem. It, was, it wasn't even the slimmest. You know in Dumb and Dumber when he says, so you're saying there's a chance? She was saying, no, there isn't. It's not one in a million. It's a not chance. And then God does something, so she makes an exception, right? So I become the exception to the rule, and the rest of her life is sort of Korean. And, and so... God continues to do a work on her. So huge work to allow her to marry me. Not to say she's racist or was racist, but so <laughs> ethnocentric. She's, I just love Koreans. You know, I'm proud of my race. Ethnocentric, not racist. Tomato, tomato, right? <laughs> Come on. Uh, and then so uh, honestly, when we were, uh, we, we had Ethan. Ethan's a bi our biological son. And he, so he's from Anaheim. And uh, that's where he was born. And then uh, when we were going to adopt, that was always part of our dating plan was to adopt. And so we, we began our adoption process. But in that process, the only place my wife would adopt from was Korea. She was unwilling to adopt from anyone else because she didn't want a non-Korean baby. And so she married a white guy, had a wife kid, uh, half-white half kid, but those, again, were the exceptions. And so God had to do some more work in her heart. And so we adopted Kayla, and of course we're super blessed by that. And then God called us to adopt again. And, but during that same time, that, that time period, God had started to do a work in my wife's heart where there were people in church where she started to really love, and they weren't Korean. <laughs> they were there's a Hispanic girl uh, named Priscilla who she loved dearly and deeply. And there was a Chinese guy who she really loved. And there, there was another person and another person. And, and so God had started to do this work where internally, like, you never want to say you're racist or ethnocentric, but... but I mean, it's secret of your harm, do whatever you want, you know, but, but that was kind of where she was, and then God started to break that down. And so by the time we uh, adopted our next son, she was like, it doesn't matter where he's from. And so we were able to, to go to China and adopt someone from China. And, and God had done this expanding work in her heart. He had 
through Jesus started to say, okay, maybe it's not just my the ethnicity that I'm comfortable with. And yeah, it's, it's way easier to be with who you're most comfortable with or who are most like you. And God started to crack open that part, open and open. And so this isn't an immediate process. It wasn't in our family and in our real life. It's, it's a growing process. So we live this reality because Jesus, he removed those barriers in us so that that we could all be equal, so that we can adopt throughout the nations in our family and all have equal access to him. So I get to joyfully live that reality in my family, but I get to joyfully live that reality in this church because even before I was hired, in case you thought I was the diversity hire for this group, even before I was hired, our leadership board uh, prior to this had decided that that they would be intentional about diversity in the church, that they didn't just want to be a second-generation Korean American church. That was a decision that was made prior to me even coming here. And so I thank God that our church embraces that truth in a spiritual sense, but also in the real, like, you can invite your coworker of any nationality sense. I, I love that, that our church is intentional about that. And I love watching our church's demographics slowly become more and more ethnically diverse and, and slowly become more age diverse. That's just because we're getting older. And uh, slowly become more economically diverse. So it's not just one place, one people, one style, one thing. But, but God is starting to slowly do that work in us. And that's the work of Christ that we see here. And I love watching it, and I love being part of it. And I'm so proud of the hard work that you all takes intentionality to reach across. Oh, maybe they're not going to be as comfortable if I'm with them. Oh, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. But the payoff is way worth it when we follow Jesus and step into his command and his desire for us. So Paul continues. He says, He, Jesus, came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit, reminding the world that access to heaven is again through Jesus, no matter what your spiritual standing was before. So it doesn't matter what your spiritual standing was before the moment you came in today. It doesn't matter if you are far from him or you're near to him. Today, this morning, Jesus says, I'm calling you to me. I'm wanting you to come right be with me right now. I've taken all that separation. You're no longer a person who is far away. You're no longer a person who is near. You are all intimately close to me because of my death on the cross. The same peace is preached to those far off and those who are near. Consequently, Paul continues, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people. And you're also members of God's household. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Again, he flips this idea of foreigners. Before he had said we were foreigners to the world, and now he says now that you're in Jesus, the world is foreigners to you. And so he comes at the same word but with a slightly different angle. And I think that's pretty clever. Christians of Gentile background, they're not second-class citizens in God's kingdom. They're full citizens with equal membership in, in God's house. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that house. Jesus, always Jesus, is the key first foundation. But then the Bible says God builds on that foundation. The next step he does is he he establishes some apostles so that the the teaching of Jesus can increase, so that the, the building of God can be built up even larger. And it's built on the testimony and the teaching of the apostles. Jesus is the beginning building block always, But then more is added. And if you look carefully in our passage, it doesn't stop with the apostles. God continues to build this building, which we are part of. 
So in fact, we get to add to the building. Here's the really cool part. Look at the last section. In him, the whole building is joined together as it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The church is like this building, perfectly designed by God, the great architect. It it isn't a haphazard pile of stones just thrown into a field. God arranges the church for his own glory. We're brought together as one building, each you and I, the church, where, where our unity in Jesus is far greater than any of our previous differences. So we get built together, each of us. And it doesn't matter what you were near or far before. It doesn't matter if you were Gentile before. You get to become part of this one new building, this thing. So we keep our common foundation, and then the building of God's people grows in this beautiful way, a holy temple where God dwells. This tells us that the church is a temple, that it's holy and set apart to God. In Hebrews 13.11, it says that each of us are priests offering spiritual sacrifices of our lips and our hearts. So when we come together as the church, when we come together and worship him, we're part of this new building. This tells us the church is us, imperfect people made perfect by the blood of Jesus who brings us in unity through the Holy Spirit. This tells us that we together, we get to add to this building by by inviting new believers, by uh, growing in the strength of our own ability. So if I'm just this one stone, at first I start, maybe I'm a little weak, but but God says, I'll strengthen you. It becomes stronger and stronger in the Lord. It tells us that we, when we do church, become a supernatural, miraculous dwelling. Something happens when you are together with people at church that doesn't happen when you're on your own. You You can meet God, you can learn about God, you can read your Bible, you can do all these kind of things on your own, and that's fantastic, and you should. But there's something supernatural and powerful that happens when we come together as a church. When we together meet and and dwell in him and God lives in us and through us by his Holy Spirit. That you too right here in the last sentence, that that you too are being built together, that's a plural use of you and it includes every single one of us. Together we here right at JRC are are the working out of this reality. Together we are either going to do the thing that Jesus says to do break down the walls, no more Jew and Gentile, no more rich and poor, no more male, female, no more this whole thing where he says, now you are one in Christ. And we here at the church, we get to do that. We're the working out of that reality. Together we build God's church. Together we share the gospel with people and and, um, share community together. And we share in worship to God together. When we worship together in, in one voice, even when we sing songs or when we meet together or when we hang out here, there's something different that's happening. It's not a concert. It's not a, it's not a 4-H club. It's not just a hangout. There's a supernatural thing that's happening when we meet together. And it happens because we are one in Christ, that he, in his body, draws us to unity together. And that's glorifying to God. God watches it and sees it. And do you think that you were just standing up there earlier and like singing and clapping along? If you thought that was just you singing to God, it wasn't. It was something that cannot be replicated because never again will we have this exact amount of same people in this room with this exact amount of song. That, that was an, a unique 
corporate worship to God that could only come when we were together in worship and unity to him. We're this essential part of of God's kingdom. You are an essential part of something that is much larger than yourself. You're a vital part of God's work in this world. You belong to the one people of God. And so if ever the enemy tries to tell you that you don't belong, that you're not good enough, you're not this enough, you're not rich enough, you're not smart enough, you're not Korean enough or or not not Korean enough or not white enough or black enough or anything enough, just know that's not God, that's the enemy. God says you are enough and you belong to this one family. So we're going to worship together right now. And I I want you to take just a moment to say to yourself, like, God, we're going to sing a song right now, but, but it's not just me singing. You know, we together are going to worship God. And we together bring a spiritual offering to God that you cannot give by yourself. And it is cool, and it's amazing, and it's beautiful, and it's powerful. And so I'd like to invite you to stand right now, and I'm going to pray us into this, that we can give God glory in one voice as one church, his people. Boundaries are broken. Walls are torn down. The separate become one. God, we turn our hearts to you, and we ask that you would receive this moment right now. We want to give it to you, not individually. We wanted to give it to you as your church this morning right here in this location. We'll come to you in one in heart, one in voice, as we give you glory and honor right now.